You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting from Room Now um, from ACR 21, the virtual conference. And I'm delighted to be joined by So Young Kim, who is from the Brigham uh, and Women's Pharmacoepidemiology Group, um, and is rheumatologist there as well. So Young, welcome to, to Room Now. Sure, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm uh, delighted to be here uh, as well. Um, and I'm in Boston, uh, so um, uh, pleased to meet you, and um, you know, whoever is listening later, thank you for listening. <laughs> And congratulations as well on your ACR award. Uh, you won the Henry Kunkel uh, um, Early Career Investigator Award. And we have a lot of people um, at Room Now who were rooting for you. So um, congratulations on that as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That uh, it, uh, it means a lot and it's such a, uh, an honor. Uh, you know, I've been, you know, kind of hoping and wanting to get the award ever since I was a fellow. So uh, kind of like, you know, my dream came true, you know. It's a really good feeling, and I, I, I am very grateful for that. Well, I mean, I think we're all very glad your dreams came true, and um, and also that you know, I think this is it's reflected in in the whole body of work that um, you or much of well, you presented a whole lot at this meeting. Um, but in particular, we're here today to talk a bit about the Star RA study, um, which looks at the topic of the day: toxicity of safety. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, of course, um, you know, TOFA's um, trial uh, data are somewhat, I think, unexpected and, you know, it was, I don't know, like disappointment to some degree. And I think a lot of patients were also surprised. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think it's a priori, I don't think anybody really kind of thought that that would happen. And um and I've been following a lot of safety um, clinical trials just because, I, you know, I like studying drug safety and we don't really have a, a, the luxury of having, you know, safety trials for every single drug. So whenever something like uh, this happens, I get, you know, particularly excited uh, because this is when I get to have the gold standard data from trial uh, for the drug safety. And then I get to use real world data to see whether that is the you know, case in a uh, more generalizable population, right? So um, for me, it's a unique, very unique and important opportunity, uh, although what we have found or what they found is somewhat unfortunate. Uh, but in any case, I think the, you know, as you know, the uh, or surveillance trial was done um, uh, because of the, uh, the regulator, uh, regulator's mandate. Uh, you know, phase two and three uh, TOFA trials, they uh, had some concerns about certain safety signals. And, you know, usually phase two and three trials are too small, too short to uh, find anything meaningful, you know, with regard to the safety risk. So, you know, obviously this phase three B4 safety trial was initiated many years ago. And, you know, this is the issue with all the trials, right? So one is very expensive, two, um, you know, it takes time um, to get going. And, you know, even after they start uh, enrolling, it takes time to finish all the enrollment and follow up. So I think it 
it was started many years ago, more than five, I think probably seven, eight years ago. And now we are still waiting to see the final product of the trial because, you know, we heard a lot uh, from um, from uh, Pfizer uh, during this meeting, basically, uh, you know, the piece of different um, outcomes, but we, we still don't um, have the full paper. Uh, while, um, you know, initially, I think maybe more than a year ago, the first uh, signal they found was a VT risk associated with a high dose of uh, tofacitinib, 10 milligram BID. And then, it, it, you know, um, my group at the time, there was last day, so actually we presented at the la- uh, late breaking, uh, I think, or maybe two years ago, I don't remember. Uh, but we, um, it, you know, we actually conducted the risk of VTE associated with TOFA compared to TNF, not knowing that's what they were going to um, find, because mainly we conducted that study based on the, um, the signal from bericitinib trier. So in a bericitinib pre-marketing trier. And then while we were conducting it and we were presenting it, the FDA communication came actually afterward. So we somehow happened to be at the timing <laughs> and our work was published in our arthritis and rheumatology at the time. Um, and then, you know, for cardiovascular risk and cancer risk this time, we, got the uh, FDA announcement and some other media uh, uh, news release um, earlier uh, uh, this year, uh, I think February, 2021. And then we immediately wanted to um, run a real world-based cohort study to replicate and to kind of see you know, their validity uh, in a different uh, data source and in a more in a representative uh, population. But what we, we actually did, and we didn't probably get to talk about it during the meeting, was we actually um, registered the full study protocol at clinicaltrial.gov. So if you search clinicaltrial.gov with a star RA uh, study, you probably uh, find our protocol with all the details, just like you know the trial trialist. Uh, register their protocol at clinicaltrial.gov. We actually, even though we are not required to do so, we wanted to also be as rigorous as possible. So we registered our um, study pro- protocols um, upfront and then initiated our analysis. Using three data set, we wanted to, um, you know, ask the same question, you know, whether the risk of cardiovascular event is higher or not higher with the TOFA compared to TNF in the overall RA patient. So that is our primary cohort. We call it real world evidence cohort. So everybody, uh, I think age 18 or 20, I think that was our other age cutoff. And we had all five TNF as a class. Um, so if they are taking one of them, they are in the reference group. And then, um, for the subgroup, uh, out of this real-world evidence cohort, we had the uh, RCT duplicate cohort. Um, so we can um, mimic as much, again, not exactly because we don't have ACR criteria, we don't have certain things that they have in the trial, uh, but we use uh, some of the criteria that uh, the OR surveillance trial uh, had for enrollment to uh, restrict the study cohort for you know, a high cardiovascular baseline risk. And then when the study, you know, make, make, we made sure that the confounding was, you know, minimized. We cannot be completely avoided, but, you know, we 
done our best to minimize. Um, and what we found is, uh, you know, again, shared uh, uh, during this meeting, um, in the real world evidence cohort, we found a comparable risk of cardiovascular events uh, between TOFA and TNF inhibitors. Um, but in the uh, RCT duplicate cohort, again, patient with the RA and some baseline um, risk factor for cardiovascular disease, we found a numerically increased risk of cardiovascular disease similar to um, what our surveillance trial uh, found. Our patients are older, um, generally speaking, because we had a Medicare uh, data set included. Um, but you know, I think what this tells me is, you know, if I have a patient who is like 40 something, 50 something year or female or ma uh, male, but you know, have no other you know, worrisome risk factor for cardiovascular disease, maybe, you know, their absolute risk of um, cardiovascular disease from TOFA is maybe not that high. Maybe that's okay. Um, but if somebody is like over 60, 65, or even 70, and, you know, they're a smoker or had a uh, you know, small MI before, something like that, then maybe those are people either I try to, use something else or if TOFA or, you know, is the only thing that I have, uh, then I have to have a serious conversation, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what we found. Yeah. Well, congratulations on such a um, rigorously run uh, study. Um, do you think that uh, that those, the results that you have from StarRA have made you um, believe the uh, concerns that um, have come out of oral surveillance more or less? Do you think that, um, you know, that's really kind of strengthened your, do you think that helps to validate it or do you think that it actually adds a different perspective? I think it, um, it kind of confirms, um, you know, I guess most of the time usually clinical trial confirms observation studies. I'm really careful that our study confirmed the trial, uh, but you know, I think our results and it's the duplicate part is in line with uh, what the trial showed. Uh, you know, if you get really picky with the statistical significance, we can go on and on. Like, but I, I I'm not a big p-value fan, so <laughs> you know, point estimate is in line with their point estimate, um, and. It is, I think, really interesting. And we don't have a full, and I think the, the thing that people are bothered by is we don't have a good explanation why this is the case, right? We don't really know why TOFA is a more harmful in certain patients. It's, there's really no good mechanism. Um, so, so that's a little bit annoying, like, because we usually want to know, we usually want to know why this is the case, but we, we don't have that answer right now. But I, I think our result is, you know, for bigger population, somewhat reassuring. For high-risk cardiovascular uh, population among RA patients, I would be very cautious. I would be cautious. Well, thanks for giving us that perspective on essentially what seems like a two-track approach that we have to take to TOFA nowadays. Okay. Thanks very much for joining us today, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2021, which was to have taken place in San Francisco. This morning, four posters about biosimilars were presented in the RA treatments poster session. Multiple biosimilars of adalimumab, batanercept, infliximab, and rituximab have been commercially available in the European Union since 2013. However, 
Only three biosimilars of infliximab and three of rituximab are presently available in the United States. Although six adalimumab biosimilars have been approved by the FDA, none will be commercially available in the US until 2023 because of agreements between their manufacturers and AbbVie. GP2017 is a biosimilar adalimumab with a low citrate concentration buffer that was approved by the FDA in 2018 as adalimumab ADAZ. In poster 822, Hexel presented data about injection site pain following GP2017 dosing from the two pharmacokinetic studies that were conducted in healthy volunteers and the two comparative efficacy studies that were conducted in patients, one in plaque psoriasis and the other in RA. Only about 5% of subjects treated with this biosimilar adalimumab experienced mild injection site pain at one hour after dosing. The rest experienced no injection site pain. This finding is positive, but not surprising, given the low incidence of injection site pain that has been observed following administration of high concentration adalimumab reference product in a citrate-free buffer. It would have been more informative if this poster had presented data comparing injection site pain in GP2017 treated individuals to that in the subjects who had been treated with adalimumab reference product. SB5, is another biosimilar adalimumab that was approved by the FDA in 2019 as adalimumab BWWD. In poster 820, Biogen presented an interim analysis of an ongoing observational study that enrolled 510 patients with RA, psoriatic arthritis, or axial spondyloarthritis from 35 clinical practices in six European countries who transitioned to SB5 after a minimum of 16 weeks of treatment with the adalimumab reference product. Most patients were either in remission or had stable disease activity at the time of transitioning. Among the 43% of subjects who had completed 48 weeks of treatment with SB5, mean disease activity scores remained essentially unchanged. Although not unexpected, the results of this observational study conducted in the context of clinical practice support transitioning from adalimumab reference product to the biosimilar. In poster 817, Hubert Marotte presented a similar interim analysis of an ongoing observational study that enrolled 649 patients with RA, psoriatic arthritis, or axial arthritis, from 70 centers in France who were initiated on treatment with the infliximab biosimilar CTP13. This was the first biosimilar monoclonal antibody that had been approved by the FDA in 2017 as infliximab DYYB. In this study, over 70% of subjects were in an active disease state when CTP13 was first administered. Among those who had not previously received infliximab reference product, disease activity improved over 24 months of treatment with CTP13. Among those patients who transitioned from infliximab reference product to the biosimilar, disease activity remained stable. Although at 70 to 80% of all patients with psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis, and 75% of patients with RA who had previously not been treated with infliximab reference product persisted on CTP13 treatment at month 24, just over half of those RA patients who had never received infliximab reference product remained on CTP13 at month 24. The main reason for their discontinuing CTP13 was lack or loss of response to treatment. Again, although not surprising, the results of this observational study conducted in the context of clinical practice support transitioning from infliximab reference product to the biosimilar. 
Finally, in poster 823, Fresenius Cabby presented for the first time data about their proposed tocilizumab biosimilar MSB11456. They conducted a pharmacokinetic study in healthy men and women comparing MSB11456 to both US and EU sourced subcutaneously administered tocilizumab. As expected, since this proposed tocilizumab biosimilar has been shown to be highly similar to its reference product in comparative analytical studies, it exhibited equivalent pharmacokinetic parameters and comparable safety and immunogenicity to the reference product in this clinical trial. Notably, fewer than 3% of subjects developed neutralizing anti-drug antibodies. I look forward to seeing the results of the comparative efficacy study that will be conducted in patients with a disease for which tocilizumab reference product is approved. Biosimilars have gained wide acceptance in the European Union and elsewhere in the world. Use of biosimilars in the US has been much lower than that in other countries, largely because the economic benefit of biosimilars has not yet been fully realized. However, the availability of multiple infliximab biosimilars in the US has already driven down the price of infliximab reference product by more than 50%. Now, the average sales price of infliximab biosimilars and of infliximab reference product are relatively similar. Thus, the introduction of biosimilars has yielded cost savings for the healthcare system. However, these savings must be shared with the patients who are given the biosimilars so that they too will realize this economic benefit. For more coverage of ACR Convergence 2021, Go to RoomNow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RoomNow. I'm so delighted here to have a guest, Dr. David Karp, the 84th president of the American College of Rheumatology. Dr. Karp, thank you for granting me this interview. Hello, Catherine. Glad to talk to you. So you've been a really busy man this past year. When I interviewed you a year ago, you told me about your vision for the ACR and all the initiatives you were gonna be working on. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a really long list. Well, what do you think? Um, I mean, this past year, what has been your proudest accomplishments? You've, you've done so much. Well, uh, maybe I alluded to it in my presidential address and it, and it probably wasn't something that we talked about specifically. But you know, if you um, read uh, Atul Gawande's book, the, the Checklist Manifesto, he talks about um, the, the list that airline pilots have you know, for, for takeoff and landing to assure safety, as well as emergencies in flight, like the, the loss of an engine. And the first thing on the list says, keep flying the airplane. Don't be so uh, 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 interested in the emergency that you forget to keep the nose up and the plane moving uh, forward. And that's what I was most proud of is that the, the ACR uh, managed to, to keep moving forward despite the, the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we were all faced with uh, unusual circumstances at work and at home. Uh, you know, some of us were seeing patients with COVID or, or had other uh, work assignments. Uh, you know, people had children at home that they had to, to worry about. So, you know, the, the ACR staffers, the hundred or so of those uh, just kept moving forward. And, you know, we have over 560 volunteers for the ACR. And a volunteer is a volunteer. They're, they, they don't have to be working for the ACR, but all of them kept their, their committee work going. All of them kept uh, their board meetings going and we got a lot done. So I think that's the major accomplishment is that, that we uh, uh, kept going through the pandemic. 
but I know you were interested in some specific things. And, you know, if you've been watching uh, Convergence, and I know that you have, um, you saw that the, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee that was uh, started by Dr. Ellen Gravelisi during her term as president has had a big impact on uh, what we've seen at Convergence. We've, there were talks about implicit bias. There were talks about how to have a, 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 a bias-free uh, fellowship application and how we can recruit and retain underrepresented uh, in medicine individuals. So this will, uh, this was just the, the start of what the DEI committee is, is working on. They're going to be providing the, the college with a, a lot of things to include in, in, our, in our college business, in our recruitment, in our, uh, what people can do in their offices, uh, as well as our, our meetings going forward. So uh, that's just you know, one thing. Um, some things that, that I didn't have a chance to talk about during my presidential address that, uh, that uh, uh, I think are very exciting. Um, last fall, Beth Jonas, who was our uh, chair of our committee on uh, uh, training and, and workforce, brought up the fact that you know, the ACR has come up with these workforce studies, I think the first was in 2005, that talked about the fact that that the demand for uh, for rheumatology services was going up, and the number of rheumatologists and rheumatology professionals was going down, uh, and, th and that was a big gap both in adult and and particularly in pediatric rheumatology, and we were very precise about the you know quantifying that and how many you know thousands of of uh, uh, people we were going to be short in the in the workforce but we hadn't really come up with uh, very many solutions. Actually, we have a lot of things that we were working on, but, but hadn't really taken as big a bite out of the apple as I think we, we needed to. So I asked uh, Dan Badaferrano, a, a rheumatologist from San Antonio, um, uh, who had recently retired from the, the military, but had worked on some of these workforce uh, uh, um, papers in the past, to lead a, a working group of uh, adult and pediatric rheumatologists and rheumatology professionals um, and they've come up with some very interesting solutions, uh, sort of a, a multi-tiered approach, um, including some things like, uh, you, know, you know, rather than the ACR or the Rheumatology Research Foundation funding, uh, you know, fellowships in, in, in places where there aren't any, but using our expertise to help uh, uh, residencies in underserved areas, the, the uh, upper Midwest or the West and some areas of the Southwest, those areas that don't have many rheumatologists or, or uh, especially pediatric rheumatologists, but might have a residency that's primed for that, that we can use our expertise to help them get one up and going. How we can actually utilize our whole interprofessional team uh, better to, to see the patients that don't have access to rheumatologists, how we can help use uh, train our uh, primary care uh, colleagues to see some of the patients uh, that may not need to see a rheumatologist as often as, as uh, they think they do. Um, you know, just a lot of different things, but it's a really very detailed uh, approach and we've got uh, uh, you know, benchmarks and are gonna move forward in the next couple of years. I mean, everything that an ACR president says they wanna do during their presidency really takes place over multiple years and, and involves you know, many, uh, many people in the college. Absolutely, and those are wonderful initiatives. And I was very impressed, particularly during the, um, the Global Rheumatology Summit about rheumatology for all. And that was the one thing that just really struck to me is, is the fact how, how much the ACR has growth. It's beyond just 
you know, us, it's everybody. And so do you think that we'll be seeing this Global Rheumatology Summit again as an annual event at the American College of Rheumatology meeting? Well, that's the plan, uh, uh, Catherine, and I, and I don't see any reason why not. And again, that's another example. You know that uh, the the that summit was a uh, the one of the first things that our uh, global engagement uh, special committee, headed by Evelyn Shea, uh, put together as a as a uh, product for one of our meetings. But you know, uh, when Paula Marchetta was the uh, uh, president of the ACR, we we had the idea to create that uh, that committee because uh, we did realize that that uh, the ACR had so many uh, interactions with EULAR uh, and APLAR, PANLAR, AFLAR, that um, all of those interactions really needed a home, really needed a place in the, in the college where, where we could uh, have educational interactions, research interactions, training interactions. And, and so, uh, you know, again, Ellen uh, Gravelisi put that uh, committee or launched that committee in February of 2020. And, and it sort of took off again during the pandemic without, uh, without uh, you know, looking back, they have uh, uh, put together a large number of initiatives. And I think the Global Rheumatology Summit was just spectacular. And yes, we will continue to do that uh, year after year. I wish it was part of the programs because I think some people missed it, being that it was pre-conference. Now, I'm going to switch your attention to something a little bit different. Sure. You, you've been very active on Twitter, probably <laughs> tweeting more than any ACR president and have more followers than any ACR president before you. So do you think digital education through social media will have a role in the future? Well, sure. Um, you know, and I think that that's, you know, being the ACR president who has tweeted the most is a low bar, but but I, it's been fun. And, uh, uh, you know, especially during virtual conferences, um, I think social media has uh, has you know taken the place of some of those hallway conversations. Did you see this uh, this session? What do you think about this? You know, let's go let's go talk about a a, a collaboration. So I, I think that that's definitely uh, going to be you know something uh, that we do in the future. As far as as you know, a training tool. Uh, you know, sure, it, it has uh, a lot of advantages, some limitations, but I think mainly it's it's a community that, that we are all able to uh, take part in. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting, you know, that the pets of the ACR was a trending topic <laughs> today, apparently. Absolutely. Well, now that you have passed the baton to our next president, Dr. Ken Sag, what advice do you have to share with him? Um. You know, Ken is going to do a, a, a great job. He's a, a skilled researcher and a, and a, and a great ad administrator. Uh, he's been a, a great friend to me over the, the past year. So I have no doubt that he's going to be a successful president. You know, um, I, I think the advice that I, that I was given, uh, which I think is great advice uh, uh, for any president is, you know, an, or any, any boss, if you know, it's not about you, it's about the team. So just... Uh, you know, keep looking forward and keep everybody on task. And, uh, you know, we have a, a great uh, group of, uh, of staff members at the ACR and a superb group of volunteers. All you have to do is uh, get out of their way. So what are you going to do now, now that you close this chapter of your presidency? Well, uh, as you well know, I have a division to run and, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, we're, we, we have some plans there to, uh, to grow and expand and, and I'll be working on that. And, 
uh, you know, I have my my research to uh, uh, keep uh, going and, and growing. So uh, I don't think I'll uh, I'll lack for anything to do. <laughs> well, one last question. All right. Sure. Can we ever expect a second term from you? You did such an amazing job. I have to congratulate you and thank you like for leading the college. I mean, you made us all feel like we're welcome to come to the table. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. But it's in the bylaws. You can only only serve one term. So uh, uh, I, I don't think I'll be reprising that role. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, they'll find things for me to do at the American College of Rheumatology. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Dr. David Cart, and I truly appreciate your service. And thank you for watching. Uh, follow me on Twitter at KDAO2011. I'm also known as the Dow Index. And watch Room Now for the rest of the coverage.